Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Before we begin, some questions. What can we learn from the recent elections? What effect is President Trump having inside both parties? And what's in store for next year's congressional campaigns? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News's Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash subscribe to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com slash subscribe. And if you really want to know how good the Cook Political Report is, well, you'll want to listen to this podcast because once again, I've got the real thing. Charlie Cook is editor and publisher of the Cook Political Report. He's also a National Journal columnist, and it's only a slight exaggeration to say there's nothing in the political world that Charlie can't analyze, clarify, or explain which is good news because we had plenty to cover, starting with his midterm analysis. The report is available only to Charlie's subscribers, but he went into the details with me. I also asked Charlie about a recent piece he wrote, one with a headline sure to excite Democrats and frustrate Republicans. A Democratic wave is forming off the political coast. What does the wave look like, and how will we know whether it's real or just wishful thinking for those Americans who need some good political news? Then, near the end of the conversation, and I really hope you listen to this part, I talked with Charlie about what I think is the issue of our time, our great political divide. Charlie has a deep historical perspective. As you'll hear, he's been doing this for a while. And when he talks about what he sees going on in the country, multiple axes of divide, you can hear the anguish in his voice. It was pretty powerful. Just one last item before my conversation with Charlie. I've been making an ask on these podcasts. I hope you like the conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate it if you take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter, and the incredible thing is, lots of you are doing it. Thank you. It's terrific to watch the numbers climb. I'm really grateful. As always, though, please be mindful of my other ask. If you don't like the conversations, just forget I ever mentioned it. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Charlie Cook. Charlie, thanks for joining me, and uh, and thank you for being a longtime sponsor of our podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm just a huge fan of Political Wire. I, I should probably count up how many times a day I look at it, but probably at least five or six times. Uh, just a quick way to see if there's anything that's happened that uh, I may not be aware of and, and just things that may have uh, just come in under my radar screen. So mm-hmm. uh, the Political Wire is just absolutely indispensable. Well, that's great. You know, five or six, that's a good start. I mean, you know, we can we can push it up there. We, we can keep working, but it's a great start. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> now, now, I forget, so, you know, feel free to remind me, Charlie, which, which sponsorship package did you sign up for? Is, is it the one that comes with the softball questions? You know, like, Charlie, how come you're not? Or, or did you sign up for the for the one where I get to ask you the real questions? You can ask me the real questions. <laughs> okay, good. Then unless, I don't necessarily have to answer, but, but you could ask me the real ones. <laughs> well, no, you're, you're not a politician. You just cover politics. You got to, you know, you got to answer. It's a, 
you know, it's the That's other guys right. who get to dodge. Uh, so, yeah. so let's start with, uh, you know, with your recent report, political environment and congressional breakdown charts, as well as something you wrote recently with a, an even more provocative title, A Democratic Wave is Forming Off the Political Coast. Um, describe the wave. What does it look like? You realize, of course, it's the topic Democrats most want to hear about, and Trump Republicans definitely don't. So, so tell me about that wave. Well, l- let me step back, and uh, I started my newsletter in 1984. And since uh, since I started the newsletter, we have seen these kind of waves, uh, a uh, Republican wave uh, in 1994, the Newt Gingrich-led uh, tidal wave election that that flipped the House for the first time in 40 years. Um, and flipped the Senate as well. Uh, we saw another one in 1980. We, well, actually, before that, 1980, you had one, but that was a rarity. That was a, a wave in a presidential year. Usually they're in midterms. But since we started the newsletter in 1984, ni- the 1994 was the first Republican wave, or first wave since I started the newsletter. And then after that, we saw subsequent waves in 2006. Uh, 2010. Uh, 2006 was a Democratic wave. Uh, 2010 uh, was a Republican wave, and 2014, which was a Republican wave. But what another way of looking at it is, in the last six midterm elections, either the House or the Senate or both have switched hands in four out of six. And the only two exceptions were pretty exceptional circumstances. Uh, 1998, the uh, Bill Clinton second term midterm election when uh, there was a, a, a backlash against impeachment. And then 2002, that was still, uh, you know, 14 months after the 9-11 tragedy. And the country was still in a very uh, different place. And President Bush's numbers were very, very high. So those are the two exceptions to the rule. And, uh, and in two of those, both, both the House and the Senate switched. So uh, these, these midterm elections, they're powerful. And we, we kind of know what they look like in advance. And, and generally what you see is uh, um, a low job approval rating, which is relevant because midterm elections are generally they're, um, um, they're a referendum on the, the incumbent president. And, you know, in uh, uh, 35 out of the 38 midterm elections since the end of the Civil War, the party in the White House lost seats. Uh, that's 92 percent. And the Senate is not quite as big, but it's 19 out of 26, uh, 73 percent since the 17th Amendment was passed and uh, went into effect in 1913. So we we see these these explosive midterms that are coming, you know, used to be sort of once every 10 years. And now they're coming with um, much more regularity. And as I said, four out of the last six. And, you know, some of the, the signs you've got a. Um, president with a job approval rating that's uh, lower than any um, newly elected president in, uh, uh, at least in the polling history. Um, you know, he's averaging about 38, 39 percent. We have a divided and disillusioned Republican Party, um, divided between sort of the Trump and the more conventional wing, and disillusioned because, uh, let's face it, they haven't, uh, um, they had four top priorities. Uh, 
um, that were, um, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare, uh, uh, build, fund and build a border wall, fund and build a um, big infrastructure program. And finally, the, um, um, well, whether it's the president you're listening to, a huge tax cut, or whether it's Republicans, a tax reform, but a big tax bill. And uh, I'm fairly skeptical about whether that's going to happen in the Senate. And then the final piece is a hyper-motivated Democratic, uh, uh, Democratic Party. Um, we've seen 33 state legislative seats uh, change hands this year, and 31 went from Republican to Democrat, and only one went from Democrat to Republican, or two of them, sorry, two, went from Democrat to Republican. Um, we've had four special congressional elections uh, that could have changed hands, and Republicans held on to all four, but I would argue that three of them in uh, South Carolina, Montana, and Kansas, there was never any real chance of them switching. The The real one was the 6th District of Georgia, which was a legit, uh, that was the real deal, and Republicans won a very hard-fought race and, and uh, should be commended for it. But when you look across those four, uh, the Democrat overperformed the, how a Democrat normally performs by about eight percentage points, uh, according to figures that David Wasserman, our House editor, has computed. So th- this is what waves look like uh, a year out. And could things change? Uh, of course they could change. But, you know, when you're looking at uh, 48, 49, 50 percent who not only disapprove of President Trump, but strongly disapprove um in 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 the polls uh in uh 48% strong disapprove in the CNN 49 in the NBC Wall Street Journal 49 in the Fox uh and 50 in the ABC Washington Post that strong disapprove not just uh, you know in just the regular total disapprove 58 58 57 59 so folks in the strong disapprove rarely migrate over into the prove later on in a presidency Okay. So a a, a lot there. Let's break some of it down. You you talked about the low job approval. You talked about the GOP um, divide and disillusionment and and the areas where their their four top priorities that uh, they all had hoped would get passed. And uh, we'll see what happens with taxes, but uh, the other three so far not. And the the motivated Democrats. And and you talked about, uh, you know, even though they lost Georgia, how they overperformed there. And we saw that as well, of course, highly motivated in the recent elections uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, in Virginia, um, New Jersey. They were expected to win the New Jersey uh, governorship and, and elsewhere. Let, let's start with the low approval ratings because, uh, you know, it, it's all about Trump, right? So, you know, let's let's start there. There is this this chart that you've got in your report, remarkable chart, um, yeah, presidential job approval versus midterm results, Senate and House midterm seat losses since 1966. And if the job approval is under 50 percent, and of course, uh, uh, Trump is the yeah. approval is under 50 average change in House seats is 40 that the you know, ruling party loses 40 and average right. change in the Senate is five seats. Now, I'm reminded uh, that in investing past performance does not predict future returns, um, but that's a pretty powerful chart. Yes. And it's, I mean, basically you could, if you wanted to even be more general, you'd say 50 or over, um, um, aren't bad for the party in the white house, but under 50, um, it starts getting really, really, really ugly. 
and um, um, and it, it's. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, there were exceptions to the rule, but there are pretty exceptional circumstances, and those seem don't seem to be uh, the case right now. And and President Trump's got um, he really has sort of a um, if you were if he were a stock, you would say he's got a very uh, very narrow trading range. Um, uh, last week, uh, um, his approval rating was 38 percent in the Gallup poll. And um, his average has been 39 to date, but basically, it's rarely, um, rarely does he break 40-41, or almost never really, and rarely does he drop below 36. Um, so it's it's a very narrow trading range, and it's 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 pretty solid. Uh, it just doesn't move much, and um, um, uh, so that. Um, um, sure, it could change, but but generally not. And 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 it typically it's the people in the president's party not voting against the candidates of their party. Uh, it's generally just staying home that they're disillusioned, demoralized, and uh, you know whether it's Republicans uh, coming up short on their top priorities or whether it's uh, not being uh, wild about President Trump's style or about him personally, or, you know, it's all kinds of things. And, and, and I would add in that every time President Trump attacks Republicans in Congress, Republican leaders, either uh, Republicans individually or collectively, what he's effectively doing is driving a wedge between the Trump base and the rest of the Republican Party. And they're going to need a unified uh, and motivated Republican Party to hold on to their majority of the House and if they've got any chance of picking up any Senate seats, uh, they've got to they've got to be unified. They've got to be motivated, and they're not now. And um, well, when I hear you, you know, talk about unified and motivated and picking up Senate seats, um, it, it makes me think directly of Roy Moore, and it makes me think of Alabama. Um, how important yeah. is it around not just I guess winning the seat? I, you know, obviously that's important, and we we all heard that. Kelly Conway line that, uh, you know, boy, we we want the votes. Um, But it it is feeling like, I mean, it's the microcosm of the Bannon versus McConnell uh, battle. So talk to me about how important is that race? How how important is it to win it for the Republicans in terms of keeping the numbers, but also kind of win or lose? Is this just showing the Republican divide? How, How are you thinking about Alabama? Well, I mean, all those are very valid points, but I would reach back and say, um, if if the Democrat Doug Jones beats Roy Moore, um, you could look at that as as um, uh, comparable to when Scott Brown won Ted Kennedy's Massachusetts Senate race uh, yeah. on January nineteenth, two thousand ten. That that was just sort of a harbinger of of bad, really bad things happening to the Democratic Party. Um, and that, uh, you know, Massachusetts for Democrats is pretty much like where Alabama is for Republicans. And if you're losing, if Democrats are losing in Massachusetts or Republicans are losing in Alabama, you know, things are going to be awfully, awfully bad. So it, it's the symbolic nature and, and psychological impact of, of a win for one side and a loss for, for the other. But even if, um, if the you, Republicans, even if the Republicans win, though, you still have the Bannon versus McConnell. I mean, you still have uh, right. more. And so is it, is it just f- further 
proof of what you were talking about before the the GOP divide. And so, you know, win or lose, you know, they they might keep the seat, but but boy, it sure does show the the, the divide that's going on within the party. Well, it 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 it, it shows that um, when you reach out of outside of normal channels to get candidates to get uh, uh, anti-establishment candidates, you you run a risk with what you're getting. I mean, you're, there's a r- certain risk involved in any candidacy, but you know, I think there's a uh, a, a feeling among the more establishment, conventional-oriented Republicans that. Bannon is is trying to rock the boat and shake things up, and he may not be screening his candidates terribly well, and that some of these people are are highly combustible, that they are the equivalent of the the Todd Akins in Missouri and Richard Murdochs in 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 Indiana and the Christine. Uh, whatever her last name was in Delaware, um, that the, the people that are capable of losing seats that Republicans probably should, would, would otherwise or should have otherwise won. Uh, and, and there's, there's, there's that, that's, um, there's that. Um, and, and for Republicans, for the calculus for Senator McConnell and, and sort of the Republican establishment, um, man, there's, there's not much they would hate more than losing a seat. But they see um, they see Roy Moore. If Roy Moore is elected, that a the guilt by association to other Republicans, uh, Republican candidates uh, and Republican senators in uh, 2018. There's a guilt by association, but there's also a perception that he's just going to be rolling grenades down the aisle in the Senate and forcing uh, forcing Republican senators to cast votes on some cultural issues that they just soon not uh, not do uh, certain Republicans in in swing states, uh, both for 2018 and 20 and 24. And I think there's a feeling that if Republicans were to lose this seat in 2000 in 2007, late 2017, uh, they would almost certainly get it back in 2020 when uh, this um, um, session str- slash strange seat would be back back up again. Uh, but that if they were to hold that seat, it might cost them more seats in other places. So uh, they've just decided that um, you know they if there's any way they could avoid a loss, they will. But it's better taking a loss in Alabama than it infecting uh, and costing them seats in other states. Charlie, I need to take a moment and pay some bills. I, I want to ask you about which you think would be more likely to flip, the House or the Senate. Also, you started with that historical run-through. I also want to get your view on this political divide we find ourselves in. But first, I want to tell you about our newest sponsor in Political Air Conversations, Voter Heads. You surely know, as our politics have become more divided, it's even more important to pay attention to the issues that are most important to you. You also know everything we're told, that the place to really pay attention to issues is locally, in your own backyard. That old expression, all politics is local, it's true. But that's the hard part. Local coverage of issues is often really spotty. Not only that, when local news finally covers an issue, it's usually after something happens, not before when you could get involved and have your voice heard. That's what Voterhead solves. It's a very cool idea and service. Here's how it works. Voterheads helps you keep track of what's going on in your local politics. What issues are most important to you? 
gun control, school discipline, taxes. Voterhead's users get alerts when issues important to them are coming up for a vote at their local city or county council. How good is that? Find out about what your local politicians are doing to issues you care about before they do it. Best of all, and you'll want to listen to this part, you can track what's going on in your community for free. As Voterhead says, we want to make democracy more user-friendly at every level. I'm sure glad someone does. If you have issues you care about and you care about what happens in your own backyard, you're going to really like Voterheads. Try it for free at Voterheads.com. That's Voterheads.com. Now, Charlie, let's take a closer look at Congress and where there's a better chance for turnover, the House or the Senate. What's your sense? Um, Absolutely the House. Um, I I think the House, uh, Democrats need a 24-seat net gain uh, uh, to take a majority in the House of Representatives, which out of 4 and 35, it's not, it's a, it's a decent sized number, but it's not a huge number, but it's, it's, uh, certainly, uh, um, in the, in the range of where you would expect in a really bad midterm election when a president's got a, a job approval rating, um, of, uh, under 50%. The average is, uh, in recent years has been 40 seats, but the, the reason the House and not the Senate is that, um, while the House is 55% Republican, 45% Democratic, um, the House is a more, um, it tends to be a more sensitive barometer to the public mood. And that in the Senate, it's, it's, it's a lot about what, what's happening, uh, what happened six and what happened 12 years ago. Um, and just to say Senate first and then House, uh, you think back to 12 years ago. Uh, it was 2006. It was President George W. Bush's second term midterm election. Uh, the war in Iraq was hugely unpopular, and President Bush's approval rating dropped down to, you know, 39, 38% going into election day, and Republicans lost six U.S. Senate seats that year. Then you fast forward six more years, the next time that this specific class of senators were up, Senate seats were up, uh, President Obama was getting reelected over Mitt Romney by three points, a little wider than expected. You had that fabulous uh, campaign organization that the Obama team had, uh, and that enthusiasm and influx of young and minority and idealistic voters. So Democrats picked up another two Senate seats on top of the six that they had won six years earlier. So that explains why Democrats have 25 seats up at risk the, in 2018, and Republicans only have nine that um, this is a pretty hardy class of Republican seats that have, have uh, withstand two, withstood two, two really bad years. And you had Democrats win under uh, just perfect circumstances. I mean, it was like uh, an orchid in a hothouse when it's cold outside. <laughs> that uh, um, These were greenhouse conditions for, for Democrats uh, in 2006 and 2012. Uh, but it's actually more than just the 25 to 9 uh, numerical dispar- dis- disparity because Democrats have 10 seats that are up in states that Donald Trump carried, and five of those are up in states that Donald Trump carried by 19 points or more. And that's, um, you know, that's big stuff. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you look at Heidi Heidekamp in North Dakota, uh, Romney won by 20, Trump by 36, uh, Joe Manchin in, in West Virginia, uh, Romney won by 27, Trump by 42, uh, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, Romney up by uh, won by 10, Trump by 19, Claire McCaskill in Missouri, Romney won by 9, Trump by 19. Uh, John Tester in Montana, 
Uh, Romney won by 14, Trump by 21. So these are very, very difficult states. Uh, and it's not to say that all or most are, uh, are going to lose, but those are just very difficult states. And then out of the other five that are in states that Trump won by um, single digits, uh, one of them, Bill Nelson, is very likely to draw Rick Scott, the governor. And that's a race that's already a one, two point race. So um, you look at that and there's just a, even though the political environment is very, very, very strongly in favor of, of Democrats, the map itself is very, very favorable to Republicans. I mean, 10, 10 Democrats in Trump seats, there's only one Republican in a seat that Hillary Clinton carried, and that's uh, Dean Heller in Nevada. Uh, so, um, and just to finish the, the Senate, um, yep. I regard Alabama as 50, 50, um, Yes, the most recent public poll, the Fox News poll, had uh, Doug Jones, the Democrat, up by eight points. I don't, um, and that was the the first one really showing Jones up. But uh, I I I I um, I, I'm going to be a lot more cautious. I mean, to me, in Alabama, you've got an enormous number of conservative, Republican, white voters. Uh, a lot of them are evangelicals. Um, the last thing in the world they would want to do is vote for a Democrat. The second last thing in the world they would want is for a Democrat to be elected to a federal office. But at the same time, many of those folks may be very or, or certainly uh, uncomfortable with Roy Moore and uncomfortable with the accusations. And um, so I think these people are terribly conflicted. And my guess is they vacillate day to day, maybe even hour to hour, so that, you know, this moment, they don't really know which candidate, who they're going to vote for, or, or maybe even if they're going to vote at all. So I think a poll taken any given day, um, you know, it's, it's a snapshot, but it, it doesn't necessarily tell you what's going to happen because these people don't know. They're so badly conflicted. So, and it's not, uh, we're not going to see, um, I, I don't think we're going to see many Republicans just voting for Doug Jones, the Democrat. I, I think the question is, are you going to have enough Republicans stay home that a hyper-motivated Democratic base can, uh, can elect a Democrat? And I think it's, it's going to be a very close call. But the, the Senate, I, um, you know, when you look at the, the states that are up, if this if the 2016 election had gone the direction that we, you know, most of us thought was going to happen and Hillary Clinton, if you had a Hillary Clinton up for um, Hillary Clinton in the White House and Democrats, uh, a Demo a Democratic midterm election, given these seats, what we would probably be talking about, given the nature of midterm elections we w and the map, we would probably be talking about whether Republicans would be picking up. Uh, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, uh, Democratic seats, whether they'd be, um, you know, knocking on the door of a 60-seat supermajority. Uh, and instead, what we're talking about is will, will Republicans be, um, you know, will they be able to pick up even one seat or two or keep their losses down to one or two. I mean, I think the selection the Senate is likely to be a wash, give or take a seat or two and Democrats need three for a majority and which didn't even seem mathematically possible three months ago. But with Alabama, if Democrats pick that one up and, you know, if you had a, uh, 
Um, and Democrats may have a shot in, you know, certainly have a, a, a very good shot in Nevada against Heller uh, or whoever wins the Republican primary there. Yep. And a decent shot in Arizona in the uh, 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 Jeff, Jeff Flake's Lake open seat. seat. Yep. And then if Phil Bredesen, the, the former two-term governor of Tennessee, if he decides to run in, in Tennessee, uh, that'll, that, that, that'll be a toss-up race. If, if he doesn't run, I don't think any other Democrat could win. So we're talking about Democrats ne- suddenly having enough shots uh, where it is at least plausible, unlikely, but plausible for them to get a majority in the Senate. But it's the House that, that we're, um, as I said, it's a lot more sensitive. And where um, Democrats need 24, there are 23 Republicans sitting in seats that, that uh, Hillary Clinton won. Um, and, and there is a certain, you know, you certainly saw signs in the, the 2017 midterms, uh, or, uh, odd year elections, uh, or, well, and so for just actually through the whole year, there've been 33 state legislative seats that have changed parties. Uh, 31 were Republican seats that flipped Democrat and two were Democratic seats that flipped Republicans. And while, um, there are only four, there are four congressional special elections where even theoretically could have flipped. Uh, I frankly don't think that the, um, um, the, um, the uh, Kansas, uh, Montana, or South Carolina ones were plausible, no, but the one Georgia. that was was yeah. Georgia, yeah. Georgia 6, and that was a legit hit, and I mean, a legit win for Republicans and a real boost to their morale and a blow to Democrats. Uh, but it was, uh, but even across those four, as David Wasserman, our House editor, has pointed out, Democrats have overperformed, you know, the norm by eight percentage points. So yeah. it's not just polling data that we're looking at. It's actual election returns that are showing. Uh, and the, um, yeah, the actual and, turnout and, and the Democrats are, are motivated and they've uh, they've they've right. been showing up at, at these places. Talk to me quickly, Charlie, um, about legislative action and in particular the, the tax bill. H- how does that work into your analysis if a tax bill passes is that just imperative for republicans because you know as we've heard them say you know we have to pass something you know anything we can't go back empty-handed or does it does it play against because it's you know that this bill is so heavily weighted to uh to corporations and uh it it means it's you know all the analysis is showing that it means uh tax increase um for you know for middle americans and for the middle class and and you know even below that really uh you know being seen as uh really benefiting uh the wealthy in this country so do they do they need the tax bill to pass to even be in the game, or does passing a tax bill the way it currently stands, is, is that just a, a path to danger for, for the Republicans? Well, that's a great question, Chris, because, um, you know, I, there, there's, there's no way of knowing how it nets out. Um, I think Republicans are making a real, real mistake saying that they have to pass this or their House majority is gone. And uh, whether that's true or not, uh, they don't really know. I don't know. Nobody knows. But the thing is, I think they're setting themselves up for a big fall uh, by saying that. And one Republican using the word existential. Um, the thing is, so what do you say if you aren't able to come up, uh, pass, get something through the Senate, uh, or if the Senate you get something through the Senate and it, and and it's so different from the House, the House doesn't take it. What are you going to do then? 
because uh, whether it's tax reform or just a huge, huge tax cut um, with at least some of it paid for, uh, these are very, very difficult things to do under the best of circumstances. And that, uh, you know, there's a reason why we haven't had a major tax reform bill get through Congress in 31 years, because it's really, really hard. And uh, under the best of circumstances, it's hard. And these aren't the best of circumstances. I mean, you think about back in 1986, the last time tax reform went through, uh, it was a bipartisan measure. Uh, Ronald Reagan was in the White House, and he had considerably more sway in Congress than President Trump has. Uh, as I said, it was bipartisan, and you had some really heavyweight people involved in that, uh, whether Jim Baker at Treasury, uh, uh, Bob Dole and Bob Packwood on the Republican side. Uh, you know, you had uh, the bill started off as Bradley Gephardt, but, uh, you know, you had um, – um, um, I mean, think of some of the titans that were yeah, around Tip, then, Tip like Russell right? Long and Lloyd Benson, and yeah, and and uh, O'Neill was 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 there. I mean, th- this this is hard, and 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 having bipartisan, I I think I think the only way you could get something like that through, that have a good chance of getting something like that through, would be either a if it's bipartisan, or b if you had you know, some enormous majority that you could just muscle something through. And that's just not where Republicans are. And when you look at that 52-seat Republican majority, and when you think of, uh, think of uh, four members on the far, on the more conservative end, uh, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Ron Johnson, these are incredibly conservative people with a very minimalist view of government. Then look over towards the center. You've got uh, Susan Collins of Maine and, and um, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Shelley Moore Capital of West Virginia. Um, these are fairly centrist people, and they do believe in a social safety net, and they do believe in a, a role for government in, in health care. And, you know, it's a wonder that these seven people are in the same party. And they can only have two defections and, 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 and still have be in a position where Vice President Pence could break the tie. So this is really, really hard. We haven't even talked about any of the members that are from swing states. Uh, so I'm a little skeptical that they're – I've been skeptical from the beginning that they're able to do this. So that um, if, if I were uh, a, a Republican, I would be – I'd be preparing a plan B of making a case for why Republicans should be kept in office even if they don't get a big tax bill through. And they may get some – I think they may get something small, something modest through, but, but something big. I'm, I'm very skeptical. But, you know, they could point to – and again, you could agree or disagree with any of these things, but um, it's hard to look at the regulatory change – uh, shift from Obama from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, and not say it's very very significant, and whether it's environmental or labor law or what have you, uh, this is a 180 degree change in 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 the regulatory regime, and then think of enforcement. I mean, there's a new new sheriff in town, and the last sheriff for a lot of folks in the business community was a pretty tough and inflexible sheriff. And this new one is one that's likely to look the other way around or if not be absolutely cooperative. Um, That's different. Um, Look at the Supreme Court and the judiciary. Um, 
you know that uh, yeah, big, that big changes there. Big changes there. Yeah, I mean, if 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 uh, Neil Gorsuch serves on the Supreme Court until he's the same age that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now, he'll be on the court in the year two thousand fifty-one. Yeah. I mean, he's fifty and she's eighty-four. Yeah, and, and the if appeals there courts. is another. Right, and then there are 13 U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeals, the 1993 U.S. District Courts. But if there is another vacancy on the court, uh, you know, the odds are that it would be one of the following three people, either Ginsburg, who's 84, or Anthony Kennedy, a swing vote, who's 81, or Stephen Breyer, a liberal, who's 79. You have to go 10 years younger than Breyer to get to the oldest conservative on the court, uh, Clarence Thomas, who's 69. So... I mean, if I were Republicans, I would be building a case for um, why, to their base, uh, that that a lot this, this that election was consequential, and a lot of things uh, are happening, and things that people who are more you know right of center um, would like, and and I would start building that case just in case they um, they aren't able to get a big tax bill through or that the tax bill they do get through is highly problematic in terms of um, where there are winners or losers and, and then there's perceived winners and perceived losers. And so um, I, I wouldn't do what they're doing of, it, of saying out loud, we absolutely have to or we're toast because – you know what do they say yeah. when? What do they say if they don't? Yeah. What What do they say if they if they come up with toast? Well, uh, that 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 certainly could happen. Charlie, to to close out, um, let's I guess to use the word that you just used a, a moment ago, uh, an existential view, and and maybe some some historical context. As I you know, since I've got the benefit of having you, um, th- this great divide. I mean, you just described even the divide within the Republican Party, and obviously we all know it. There's just the, there is a massive massive divide that, that many of us just don't really understand, um, you know, how it how it comes together, um, maybe certainly not uh, under this presidency. And, you know, who knows when and, and there are all sorts of forces around that. Um, your view, um, not just among politicians, but among people who follow politics and people whose business is politics and the people that you talk to and you, you crisscross the country. Um, have you ever seen a division like this? Obviously, I I can't imagine that you have. Um, So maybe more significantly, do you see a way out? Well, I'm not a historian, so uh, no. But, but you've had, you have the benefit but, of having been <laughs> done this yeah, for a while. Yeah. So no, no I, I think that I personally think that the country is as badly divided as it's been since the uh, since uh, the Civil War Reconstruction era, uh, pre Civil War, Civil War, and Reconstruction. I think we're is that badly divided, and it's. You know, it's left, right, it's urban, rural, it's coast versus the heartland. Um, it, it's it's people that in, in the old Rust Belt uh, uh, looking, uh, thinking that they've been passed over. Um, huge, huge, huge cleavages in this country. And, and it's not just in the Republican Party. I mean, it's, it's you know, with the uh, uh, Bernie Sanders giving Hillary Clinton a real run for her money for the Democratic nomination. And, and I think the old days when we just sort of looked at things left, right, conservative, liberal, uh, that that maybe it was never quite that simplistic, but we've got to think of things in a much more complex way than before. That it's uh, 
you know, it's left right, but it's also sort of uh, populism versus. Um, I'm not quite sure what the opposite of populism is, uh, elitism or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then inside and outside, it's 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 uh, um, you you see these huge uh, ga- huge differences of people that feel like they are disenfranchised, and the left where there were Bernie people, or on the right where they were Donald Trump people. Um, there's a lot of angry anger out there, a lot of emotion, and it's shaking things up. And that even if, let's just say hypothetically, President Trump decides in 2020 uh, not to seek reelection, um, even if he were to do that, I don't think this divide in the Republican Party would be healed. I, I mean, I think you'd probably see Mike Pence on one side and then a million other Republicans uh, uh, competing to be the, the alternative to Pence. But um, and this this fight on the Democratic side, uh, this this Clinton Sanders fight is going to continue into 2020. It just is going to have different names and, and, and different uh, vehicles. Uh, for for each side, so um, I, I think um, our, our country has gotten significantly uh, more complex, more conflicted, um, and and I say this with some degree of anguish that uh, you know you spend your entire adult life studying elections, studying studying voting behavior and candidate behavior and. And, you know, you get to the point where you think you're pretty good at this. And, you know, there will always be a few surprises here or there. But what we're, we're, where we are is now we saw 18 months of it was like the laws of, of political gravity were suspended. Um, I tend to think things are getting back a little more towards normal than before. I mean, if, if, if you could say and do what President Trump has said and done and have a 50 or 55% job approval rating, then that meant that the laws of gravity were repealed. Um, fact is that he's at 37, 38, 39. Okay, that's, that makes sense given what he's doing so that things are being somewhat more, more rational with what we knew Thing, the way voters would behave in the past, but uh, we're in uncharted territory here, and um, it's um, um, people. People say, "Aren't you? You know, this has got to be the most exciting time of your career." And I look at it and say, "Well, actually, I'm not. You know, I don't know. I mean, I um, I see the country going through a ringer here, and uh, I see the Republican Party going through a ringer. I see the Democrats." Uh, divisions are are less visible but i think are the fractures are 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 every bit as much there uh, or will be um and and um a lot of 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 discontent in the country this is um um you know i think it's more than 68 when the country was divided over vietnam it's uh it's real context and yes i i feel it as well but uh you know, you're going, you're, you're crisscrossing the country. You're talking to people from, you know, all political, you know, all across the political spectrum. And, um, I feel it. I feel that I feel it in your voice and in the words that you're, you're saying, um, I feel that anguish. And, uh, a lot of us feel that way. Um, anguish about the divide and, you know, anguish about a lot of the directionally, a lot of the things that are being said and, and done. Um, it's a challenging time. And, um, I, I hear you on that uh, 1968 comparison. Um, I've been wondering that myself. I've been thinking of uh, doing a conversation on, on that question and comparing today to 68. Uh, I was watching the uh, you know the Vietnam War uh, uh, documentary, yeah. the Ken Burns thing, 
and uh, anyhow, uh, a, a lot there and a um, you know, very, very confusing time. Um, thank you. Thank you for uh, your time. Thank you, Chris, and I, I'm just uh, a, a big fan of Political Wire and happy to do this, and I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to uh, uh, the podcast over the last few years. They've been great. Uh, really? Very, very helpful. So. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you Have for your support, day. Charlie. Thanks, you Chris. too. You too. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Charlie Cook. I really felt his anguish at the end there. Charlie knows politics, and he clearly feels something different is happening. My thanks to Charlie for joining me and, of course, for sponsoring our podcast. And my thanks, as always, to you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you again soon.